Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. We are live in the Asia Tech Podcast studio, Graham Brown, joined by Lindy Ledowowski. Did I get that right? You sure did. Ruben Balasubramanian. That's right, pretty much. Balasubramanium. <laughs> Maniam. Yes. All right. Apologies. No worries. I'm doing my best here. These are very long names. Well, great to have you here. Co-founders of SA Jack. That's We're right. going to talk about your journey in the startup world. And not just journey in the startup world, but you've come from Canada to here mm. to, through Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia as well. So you're a Canadian company. That's correct. You have operations in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're here today in Singapore on your tour, your world domination tour. So we're going to talk about that as well, as well as what you're doing in the space of SA Jack as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can um, talk a little bit about what SA Jack is, put that on the table first, and then we'll sort of wind back as to, you know, why are you in this space in the first place? So a bit about your background yeah, and, yeah, you know, sure. how you got into that space. I was going to say, who wants to start? Who's going to speak? I suggest you start. You're the okay. CEO. Yeah. Lindy as the CEO. Right. What is SA Jack? Yeah. So um, put simply, SA Jack is an essay structuring tool. So it's an, an online platform that... Uh, structures English language writing in, mm. in any genre. So we've started in the education space. And that's why Essay Jack, we're focusing on essays. I used to be an English professor. So right. I have written my fair share of, of You've essays. You've seen your fair <laughs> share as well. I have marked right? my yeah, fair exactly. share of essays. More and, and my fair share. So that's sort of uh, where it got started. I mean, you can jump in with a little bit more. Um, You're both professors. That's correct. Mm. Yeah, I'm a professor of law and philosophy. Right. Okay, so how many essays have you sat across the table from in your life? Let's oh. just say simply, we, we've done our 10,000 hours. <laughs> 10,000 hours, yeah. That's Each more. and then some. <laughs> That's one per yeah. essay. Yeah. Okay, so I think it's important. If we can jump into the pitch deck here, um, we're going to have a look at your essay, Jack. Pitch deck. I think it's important to start with the problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've identified it straight off the bat, which is students cannot write. Yep. And, and you know what? They're, they're not alone. So we've really focused on the students can't write. Right. But many of us I think can't so, yeah. write. Um, right. You know, it, it's, it's a quite, quite a global problem. I mean, I think the statistics are something like U.S. businesses spend $3.2 billion mm. a year In on writing, writing remediation. remediation for people who already have jobs. Like that's... Writing I've, remediation? Yes. Is so that, that a thing? Yes. Oh, right. it's an expensive thing. Is okay. that like courses, like professional development? Yeah, so it's, it's where oh. you basically bring in like a consultant right, and say, yeah, yeah. oh, I'll pay you a whole bunch of money to come and teach my staff um, how, how to write, write documents. There are writing consultants, for example, in Toronto working right. with uh, junior lawyers who bill as much as the lawyers do, $400 an hour. Wow. To, to help those lawyers what school write should have done. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right, so w- where's the fundamental problem? And I completely agree with you because I consider myself a writer in mm-hmm some aspects of what I've done. I've written books. Mm-hmm. And I find it quite frustrating that, you know, people think they can write because they've been to university and they wrote a 10,000 word essay. Yeah. Therefore, they're qualified to write. And when you actually have to sit and read their writing, it's quite a challenge. I've only read a few. I mean, I haven't done 10,000 yeah. <laughs> hours like you guys. So let's talk about that. Why can't people write? What is it? Is it they're not trained? Is it something missing? What's yeah. the issue here? Well, I think I can jump in sure. uh, on this one. I mean, so one at one level, the problem might be where people lack basic linguistic capacity, mm. English language learners. Mm. But the problem we're interested in, which is the big general problem, is that people have no trouble deriving content or 
getting access to information, right. their difficulty lies in systematically and clearly communicating it in a written format so that someone else can understand it. Right, so, so the issue is there's too much It's out structuring right. an organization. Okay. Yeah, right. so this is one of those things, and I'll, I'll jump in here. So, you know, back in ye olden days, when mm. I learned how to write, I like literally learned how to write with, with my hand and pen and, you know, wrote a draft first, and right. then I would go and sort of type it up. And, of course, that's, that's now lost. So mm. people first go to whether it's typing or or you know, sort of texting, and mm. then you you have um, ultimately a blank screen, which seems to require something that's finalized, and all of that sort of messy pre-work is now gone. And so mm. what's missing with that messy pre-work is that's often how you organize your thoughts, how you structure your thoughts. And so what SA Jack is saying is, okay, well, we've now digitized that experience mm. with the benefit of our expertise for what constitutes genre-specific writing. So if you're writing a short story, here are the component parts. If you're writing an essay, here are the component parts. If you're writing, mm. you know, if you are preparing a persuasive speech, here are the component mm. parts, you know, so that um, some of the technologies out there do a really good job once you've written something. So you can spell check and you can grammar mm -hmm. check yeah. and there's now, you know, autocomplete. If I've got half of a sentence written, you know, I might get a suggestion for the rest of the sentence. But when I'm staring at that blank mm. something, whether it's mm -hmm. a text box or, or a blank yeah. Microsoft Word page, it's just blank and there's nothing to help. And SA Jack is sort of marching boldly into that empty right, space. Right. You, that empty space, you said that sort of messy pre-work, the heavy mm -hmm. lifting that goes in mm -hmm. to create the yeah. essay. Let's talk a little bit about that because yeah. that's key, isn't it? Yeah. As I understand what you're saying is that now we have access to all this information. That's right. What tends to be the knee-jerk reaction to writing an essay is just gather the information, dump it onto a you know a document, and then sort of cut and paste what I can get yeah. away with, yeah. submit it to the professor, yeah. right? So whereas before, because we actually had to write this stuff and it was a lot of work, there was a cost involved yeah. in writing it physically or tapping away on the typewriter. Therefore, we thought, twice about just kind of dumping everything there. We had to actually think about organizing it first. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that that messy pre-work. What, what exactly is that? What, what is that skill that's kind of missing? Well, I, I think uh, one of the major difficulties at the level of pre-work is people don't take good notes anymore because access to information is easy. Mm. Whereas previously, I'd have to go to a library, do some research to find relevant sources, read articles, and take notes by hand. As I'm doing that, I'm internalizing structure. Mm. As I'm doing that, I'm already starting to organize the relative relevance of the information that I am now accessing. I no longer need to do that. I could just go onto Google. Right. Of course, that's a different problem we can talk about. You can go onto Google and do a search. You might find all these sources, but you might not still be able to rank them effectively. But the point is because you no longer need to really take notes. Mm. It's cut and paste. You're not actually learning the rules. This creates a problem when it comes to writing. Right. So the actual process of taking notes yes. is actually helping you create structure. Yes, it is. Before you actually create You have the... to read more closely. Yeah. You have to synthesize and distill. And as you do that, you're already learning structure. Well, and I think too, and I'll, I'll jump in here as well, just from a technological perspective, and, and by all means, I'm not anti-tech. I mean, I'm the CEO of a tech company, so I'm mm. not anti-tech. But at the same time, technology breeds certain kinds of pathologies when it comes to writing. So um, to go back to how easy it is to acquire content, mm. I can Google search anything and get a lot of information, a lot of data. And then I can just sort of quickly copy and paste that yeah. into a document without ingesting and deciding, okay, what actually needs to be there, what's nice to have, what's interesting, what's mm. relevant. Whereas, you know, again, back in the olden days, I would hear somebody 
lecturing, I would take notes on what they were saying, or I'd, you know, in, in Ruben's example, I'd go to the library and I'd be making all kinds of decisions at every step along the way about what constitute was of what content was valuable yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. to bring to bear. Whereas now you don't really have to make those right. decisions anymore. And so exactly. as a result, you're you are as you you know, you very rightly describe what is essentially a kind of content dump on the page yeah. and then you, you hit indent a couple times to indicate that's yeah. a new paragraph. Right, right, right. And, yeah. and that's change and, a few of yeah. the words to get yeah. it through the copyscape, right? So yeah. you know, students yeah. had how to do this now. Yeah. So yeah. all right, well let's let's sort of dive into this a little bit. I'm really fascinated mm -hmm. by how you actually solve this. So we'll look at the solution. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can have a look at some of the data as well. Mm -hmm. You've got some data in your very extensive mm -hmm. pitch deck. I want to jump forward here. Um now, if you are listening only to the audio version of this, we may have to do, be a bit descriptive with our data here. So how proficient are students? This is the data to back this mm -hmm. up. Um, what are we looking at here? So we've got a comparison, grade eight and grade 12 students in the US. So what age would they be? Grade eight would be So 13. grade eight is about 13 and yeah. grade 12, they're just getting ready for college and university. You're yeah, right, so okay. 17, 18. 18. Sure, they should be able to write at this stage, especially at grade 12, right? Okay, oh, fair enough. Put it out there. So. Explain to me the colors here. Can you yeah. maybe describe to people who can't actually see this, what yeah. this data is showing? And this is from the U.S. Department of Education, so yeah. it's pretty cohesive. Yeah, right? yeah. So this, so this is, uh, and this is just sort of one of the data points, but, there, but there's a mm. lot. So this U.S. Department of Education statistic that Graham's talking about indicates that over 70% of American students at both of these grade levels, grade 8 and grade 12, are functioning at the basic or below basic level. So it's only 24%. Uh, for both and 3% um, at the top end that are proficient or advanced writers. And so mm. really you're looking at um, a large number of, of students uh, really functioning bef below the proficiency level. Yeah. And there are lots of complicated reasons for that. Uh, some of it is um, the dynamics of, of contemporary classrooms where um, s there's grade inflation, there's uh, budgetary constraints which mm. limit what educators can do. So, I mean, we mentioned at the start that I that I was a professor, but prior to that, I was a I was a high school English teacher as well. So I've seen both sides, and so I'm I'm loath to be one of those professors to say, oh my gosh, it's just you know the what's happening at high school. Mm. It's terrible. Right, right, right. I think it's it's far more complicated. I think um, the global movement of students from various different educational jurisdictions. Um, doesn't create the same kind of continuity of an educational process that you you once had. Mm. And so there are certain things that you can't necessarily rely that are being taught at various different stages mm. along the way. And, and all of this has kind of gone together to create quite a difficult um, and complicated situation mm. where students aren't necessarily getting the skills necessary to be successful uh, later on and later on. And so by the time they get to college or university, they don't have that foundation. And, you know, if you have students in your class for 12 weeks, that's the length of a, of a semester mm. at college or university. If they don't already have that foundation, it's like showing up to first year calculus and you don't know how to add right. and subtract. Yeah. It's just, it's so not going to happen. So then you encounter a professor like myself, <laughs> typically, so the statistics here don't actually show uh, the skill levels, writing levels at university, but when students come to university, if they don't have the skills, they have to pick it up on the street, as it were. Right, yeah. A university professor yeah. is not going to teach them how to write, most of the time, because professors 
don't have the knowledge to teach you writing skills. They they all know how to write in mm. their disciplines, mm. but I'm a content area expert. Right, it's a domain knowledge you're yeah. teaching them, right? Yeah, so yeah. you've got to figure it out, and if you can't, you've got a problem. You get left behind. And yeah. so there's a huge gap. Wh- in why is it a problem, though? I want to bat it back to yeah. you. Why is lack of writing, and if we look at the data back there, it's 70%. So 70% have a problem because yeah. they're not proficient. Why is that a problem? We live in a world now where, you know, if I want to communicate, I can just pick this thing up and send you a... A text message or yeah. WhatsApp. So, so, Why is it a problem? So there, there are two sort of really key areas, and they are crucial in my mind because they get to questions about equity um, and creating an equal playing field for people the world over. And this is stuff mm. that I'm really passionate about. And so really, um, when it comes to communication, if you cannot adequately communicate in writing, that's going to impact your ability scholastically. So these yeah. these students who are, say, below proficient at high school, they're the ones who aren't going to be getting the scholarships, who aren't going to be doing well in, in school, and that will impact their educational experience. And then their job prospects. So mm. those students won't be the ones who will be top of the class, getting into law school, getting the great internships, et cetera. And then if you take it into the, the workplace context, so let's say to your example, you know, okay, I'm not proficient, but I can grab my phone and I can yep. send you a text message, but I'm never going to be able to be promoted into managerial positions, into that upper level professionally in my workplace if I'm not able to communicate in writing with those higher up. So right. basically at every step, there's a kind of gatekeeper, whether that gatekeeper is an educator or a professional, and writing is the key sort of metric mm-hmm. that judges whether or that that is that, that sort of... Um, gate through which you must pass to demonstrate yeah. your your eligibility for that next level past the gate. So to respond to your question, I think I might have a slightly different answer. <laughs> That's essentially a kind of efficiency answer as right. well, right? right. But it's an equity answer. It's an equity answer. Well, equity <laughs> and efficiency, you know. But, but I think the further answer as well is if you look at Essay Jack, I think mm. superficially it's a writing tool. Mm. But we learn how to think through writing. We only ever really confront our Absolutely, thoughts through yes. writing. So yes, we might be able to send text messages. But if we want to delve into something in any level of depth, nuance, complexity, mm-hmm. we have to be able to formulate coherent thoughts. Mm. Um, otherwise, we're open to manipulation. We can't think critically and independently. And that's, that's my broader answer to that question. Yeah, I'm fully on board. But I agree with both of you. I don't want to <laughs> yeah. cause a, a rift here. But your point about mm-hmm. writing to teach yourself, mm-hmm. I think it's re- if you can't crystallize those thoughts in your own sure. mind, you can't then teach somebody else that. Mm-hmm. So it's a really important process, isn't it? Just to be able to write yeah. you know, for your own benefit and, and rather than the reader's benefit. And even too, it makes you a better reader and a better listener. Mm. So if you've been able to um, master the skills of writing, particularly structural skills, so you know the moves happening in an argument, Mm. then for instance, when you're confronted with fake news, for example, Mm. you you know, you'll be able to sort of evaluate more critically what what is or isn't uh, worth your time and attention. Well, let's dive into the solution Mm. because now let's take that into the world of technology. And I want to preface this as well because I, I was shown years ago when I started my sort of professional career, somebody showed me uh, a McKinsey document, a McKinsey writing manual. Mm -hmm. And for years and years, I'd been writing as they had taught me in the world of academia. And then I read this McKinsey document. Oh my God, this is like really, really good. And it was handwritten, sort of Mm -hmm. typed Mm -hmm. and then photocopied and Mm -hmm. like ring bound. And 
it, somebody had photocopied it and handed it around, and there was like a structure. And they said, "Look, if you want to write, you structure it." And they had like their, you know, their triangles and mm -hmm. all the mm -hmm. the argument triangles. And you know, they say things like, "You know, don't use words like this or it. Be specific about what you wanted." Did I write that? I Something <laughs> you like might that. Well written that, but whoever wrote it was a genius. <laughs> well, thank I, you. I, 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 <laughs> take credit for it. So, and I, I then realized actually there is a structure of to course. writing. Like, I mean, if you go into the world of art or or sure. music, there's there's a there's a science behind the art, isn't sure. there? You know, like if you write a play or a movie, mm. there's all these courses you yeah. can take about structuring these things. So maybe we can dive into your solution because I, I feel that you're going to teach us a little bit about structure yeah, and how yeah. to do this, right? Yeah. So let's do that. Let's dive into the pitch deck. Well, I'm going to jump forward a few uh, into yeah, the, yeah, the platform. Yeah. So let's talk about the actual platform. How does it work? Let's yeah. walk us through. If I'm a student, how would I actually? So use maybe this? I'll start the answer, okay. and I'm sure you'll continue <laughs> with the details. Because <laughs> I think team. to uh, to explain the philosophy behind essay Jack in a very simple way, good writing is about understanding location, location, location. Every genre of writing involves learning to put information in the correct places because research shows that readers of the English language have relatively stable expectations about where to find information in a document. And once you know where to put information, you will write a reasonably comprehensible document. Mm. So that's where the structuring comes in. The scaffolding comes in. Yeah. Right. Interesting. So you're saying that we're mentally trained yes. to find information in certain yeah, places. Your eyes will scan for information right. in certain places. And so if you don't see it, you won't understand the document. Put it there yeah. Yeah. where we're looking for it. So all we're doing is decoding these locations. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more to it than that, but basically. Yeah. All and, right. And, and and just to pick up on that, and then I'll, I'll jump in mm. with a little bit more detail on in terms tool, of, how, yeah. of how SAJAC does what, what we're describing it to do. Um, but to go back to, as you were saying, on the from the perspective of, say, a marker, and a teacher, a professor. So you get these content dumps, mm. but your mind is looking for information in certain places and you're not finding it. And it takes a lot longer for you to kind of forensically go in and try to untangle what you think the students this are trying to say. This may require scotch as well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then, but I mean, this is also the, this, the case where... Um, you know, so say if you're you're a board of directors of a company and you get reports yeah. that come to you, and even if those reports linguistically are correct, so they've been grammar checked and spell checked, mm. but they are a kind of dog's breakfast in terms of the structure, it's very difficult to then find the information that you as a as a director are looking for. And so that you know can affect mm -hmm. your ability to do the kind of due diligence required at that level. So mm. in both cases, you've got sort of whether it's a teacher or a boss who's looking for information in a particular place. And so what SA Jack does is it's, I mean, there's a lot of sort of ped pedagogy that goes into why it does what it does and how it does what it does, which, you know, I won't, I won't bore you to death with. I'll give you the high points. So, so one of the high points um, is what in um, English language learning context is called chunking. So it's taking bits of English language and mm. chunking it into smaller component parts. And so for instance, in um, write or in speaking, instead of teaching people just to say, you know, hello, you might teach them the chunk, hello, how are you? Right. And then, you know, that's your chunk. Yeah. Um, and so in writing, it would be, say, a small, we're all familiar with small text boxes. So you have small text boxes and into that text box goes a chunk. So for instance, in the academic essay, the first chunk is the topic. Mm. So instead of, you know, I am, since the dawn of man time, man has written about whatever, yeah. you actually say, okay, so what's your topic? What are you mm. writing about? Mm. You know, focus it. If you're writing about tech in Asia, mm. have a first sentence that says, you know, this essay is going to explore the growth of tech in Asia. 
as mm. opposed to, you know, technology is interesting in various parts of the world or whatever, which, which doesn't have that kind of focus that people are looking for. The second component from a pedagogical perspective, and Ruben's already mentioned this, which is scaffolding. So scaffolding in teaching terms um, is much like scaffolding in construction <laughs> terms. Right. You need you it. Sort of, you, yep. you need it. And, which and was actually the inspiration for the platform. After, yeah, you want to... Yeah. You want to go there? You wanna... We can, if you like. <laughs> well, tell us tell us a story, because that's so how, how the idea remember, came right? about is, uh, so my, well, my best friend owns a very large scaffolding company. He makes scaffolding for construction, oil and gas. Mm. Uh, and about five years ago, went to, I went to visit his factory. He said, you should come and look at it now. It's no longer a shack indeed. It's got robots and all these things. And as I was walking around looking at these bits of scaffolding, I thought, why couldn't we just build scaffolding for writing? Mm. The connecting parts, which right. don't really change. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so just like the building, you know, you design a building whatever way you want. The scaffolding is used as a framework for you to mm. put up the building. Then the scaffolding. Disappears. And what does that framework do? I mean, let's yeah. put it in the context yeah. of like, building a building. It keeps you in that's line right. with where it needs to go. And there's certain physics in there as well, yeah. right? That's Which right. is yeah. kind of what exactly, exactly. So it. so it helps you go from sort of you have the scaffolding and then and then you build mm. floor number one and then you, you the scaffolding goes up and you're able to build the second and mm. third. You know, mm. continue to build and then. The scaffolding gets pulled away and the building stands there still and it, stands, is, it yeah. still right. stands yeah. on its own. And it and it is different. You know, you can use the same scaffolding for building A and building B, but they will look quite different. And so in a writing mm, context, mm. you can have those same connecting bits, this that same structure, but it doesn't limit the writer's creativity, the writer's ability to... Um, play within that structure and yeah. create as mm. you would in buildings. This two is an interesting quite point, buildings. isn't it? Because people often argue, and wrongly, I mm -hmm. think, that you know, once you start creating structure, you remove creativity. But if you look at any creative person, whether they're in art, music, mm -hmm. or writing, they have a ton of structure. Of they course. do, and of that's course. what we don't see. Yeah. It's that base, isn't it? Below the ground, it's the the yeah. you know what they put into the ground that they built on which we don't yeah. see. Absolutely. And I think that's the bit, that's the sort of the myth, isn't there, about creative work? Creativity it, is by definition a structured activity. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, and it is. And I think yeah. as well, one of the things, one of the the unhelpful myths around creativity and, and writing falls prey to this, as do other art mm. forms, but is this myth that like, it's just the creative genius and it right. sort of pops out of your head magically. It's a flash. And, yeah. and, and that's, yeah. so firstly, that's not the way Writers no. work. Real writers work very, very hard. On like Stephen thing. King. Yes. I mean, he, he, look, he gets up in the morning, he writes two thousand words. Yeah, mm -hmm. does it. And there's and there's even a, if and he's there's, not feeling it. Right? And there's a there's a framework, and it is and it is real work. It's not just sort of magic genius. And yeah. so when we tell students, or when students are led to believe that there's some sort of magic genius that happens outside of them, it's very disempowering. You don't you feel mm. like there's nothing you can do. And and I'm of the firm belief that with respect to all art forms, all of us. If we put in the time, we can be proficient. We may not then take it to the next level. That right. may be something that is ineffable. You know, I don't, maybe I don't have what it takes to be Picasso, but I can probably learn how to be a pretty good painter if I get the structure right. And so similarly, yeah. I'm very confident that I can teach anybody to be a proficient writer. Then it's up to them whether it really sparks mm. and they and they sort of take it and run with it. But I was going to, I had said Three, there were three pedagogical things two. I did too. And so I don't want to leave people hanging because this is one of those All things. Right, that, you, you know, the structure's my, working there. I was going to say, this is the my, third my, my OCD. So the, the third part <laughs> is, um, and again, in, in teaching, this is so this is uh, interrogative methodology is the sort of formal language. But, but put simply, it's just focus questions. Mm. So if you are, as you are writing, if you're just kind of answering questions like, oh, what's your topic? Right, yeah. Oh, is there any background we need to know? Okay, what, what's what's the point that you're going to mm. argue? And so you merely ask students questions. And so in an old school classroom, that would be sort of Socratic 
methodology mm. teaching. Mm. I get up and I ask you questions and you answer and, and we collectively create knowledge. And so we've replicated that digitally. And so those are the kind of three, and as I say, there are other things at play, but those are the sort of really three value adds from a pedagogical perspective going on in I think I just to sort of maybe make the point in a slightly simpler way <laughs> I'm I'm not the <laughs> pedagogical expert I'm just a lowly professor of law but uh, one of the biggest reasons for poor writing is people forget that they write for an audience mm. and and that's very easy to forget when you stare at a blank Microsoft word page but with essay jack what we've done is try to put the audience front and center so the three component parts the focus question is a question that's posed by the reader then you have uh, transition statements or so sentence starters that are common uh, sentence starters that the reader would expect. And then you have further tips. Mm. So the writer is never writing alone. Mm. And that's the core idea. Absolutely. I love it. I want to put this to the test. I mean, uh, we can't actually put this to the test live. So I'm not <laughs> going to put you on the spot. But you've got some data here as well. If we can flash up the, the pitch deck. Sure. I'm just going to jump through a little bit here. Yeah. Um, it works. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your tests. Yeah, um, we've done. What's the actual, what's the qualitative and quantitative results that come out of this? So we've done, uh, and there, there's a, a whole lot of actual raw data um, from which we've pulled this. So, so we did testing in 2014, 15, 16, 17, and we're running tests now. And they've been mm. all different kinds. So there have been control group tests where we had one group using SAJAC and one group not. And of course, in the class using SAJAC, the grades were higher. We've done tests where it was optional and students could use SAJAC or not, and they sort of chose to. And then we gave them surveys and got feedback and their mm. grades were higher. Um, and they've reported less writing anxiety and less procrastination. We've had um, mm. tests where we've given SAJAC to students to use and then just asked them give us your feedback. And then we've run a linguistic analysis. And, and on that test, uh, it was 80% of the students, the word that they repeated the most was helpful, that SAJAC was helpful. Yeah. So across the board, the kind of three metrics we've been looking at, um, does it reduce writing anxiety? Um, does it increase grades? And does it sort of speed up um, the writing process? So that's the efficiency point. Mm. And across the board, the answer to all of that is yes. And that's been whether it was and all of these tests, aside from this sort of 2014, which was an, an early prototype, they've all been paid. I mean, we just sort of launched our product in the marketplace um, and had paying customers. And those paying customers were also our focus groups and our right, beta right. testers and, and everything. And, and so we've had mm. thousands and thousands of students and teachers providing us with, with reams of data um, that really does show that. And that soon we works. will have a, a white paper, no less. Yes. yes. Great. Set out all of the, this information. Yeah. Yes. Well, okay. There's a couple of things I want to ask yeah. you. I want to ask you about who actually pays yeah. for this. But um, before I forget, I want to know what you've learned in this process yeah. as well. What assumptions you've challenged of your own. But So you, you say it's paid. Who actually pays for yeah. SA Jack? Is it like a white label product or do individual students pay for it? So presently, we have two sources of revenue, B2C and B2B. Right. B2C is subscri subscription-based, so individual users or their parents may pay yeah. for that on a monthly or annual basis. And then we have um, a distribution We have distribution partners, and we have institutions that will pay their buy licenses. Right. You've got quite in-depth analysis of that in the pitch deck yeah. here. We won't go yeah. too much sure. into depth sure. on that, but it's sort of, you know, the, these would be institutions, yeah. like education. So schools, yeah. colleges, university. and universities, mm -hmm. and they will right. buy it as, as SA Jack. Um, uh, we do have white labeling options. So yeah. if uh, university says, okay, we, you know, mm. University X, we want it and we want to stick our, our logo on it. Yeah. Totally. Fine. Doable. But yeah. if it gets better grades for their students, then, yeah. well, 
it's a no-brainer, really, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. With all due respect to the yeah. product, but it, for them, yeah. if it helps them get that mm-hmm. result, it's just a tool for them as much as giving them access to a library. Yeah, right? absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Okay, fine. So I want to ask, we're going to the revenues as well. Yeah. We'll jump into that in a minute. But the um, what have you learned yourselves in this process? Because you've conducted so many tests, you know, <laughs> from 2014 to yeah. 2017, even now 2018. Yeah. Is there any, I know there's so much that we can yeah. go into. Have you sort of like, learned something yourself in the process we said oh we thought it was going to yeah. be this but actually it's that yeah in terms so, of the SOS. sure so, i so, thought i'd be on a beach and driving a ferrari <laughs> by now but not so apart from that well, i was gonna no. say didn't you mention scotch can we get the yeah, scotch yeah, going yeah. now you just love the intellectual challenge yeah. i think more than that well yeah. we'll see i may be a masochist this yeah. is true, <laughs> do you want to jump in with a real answer first no then? go ahead well i i mean i'm as you you've intimated i mean there's so many lessons to learn lessons mm. about the product lessons about the business lessons about yourself lessons about you know all of that so you know you kind of pick and choose which which to talk about um, on air. But I think, um, so a couple of things in terms of the uh, product as a business. And so very, very quickly and very easily when we started, everybody we showed it to loved it. So mm. our very first, I think it was like sort of 200 alpha testers, and that, that was grade 8s, grade 11s, grade 12s, their teachers, administrators, five different university classes at the University of Toronto. So all of them Like they all sort of uniformly, universally loved it. And I think from that, we said, oh, we sort of had this very naive, like, well, if we build it, they will come. So we'll just make Mm -hmm. the best product out there. And then because it's awesome, everybody will want it. I mean, as you said, an institution, it makes their students' grades better. It's a no brainer. That is true. But you have to, there's a lot of labor involved in telling that story and getting that in front of as many eyeballs as possible. Mm -hmm. So one of the big lessons is that that is costly, you know, yeah. sort of sort of getting your your amazing product, even if it is the best product and the only one sort of in its space. I mean, we've really reinvented um, drafting and sort of invented a new product category. There's nothing that's really doing what we're mm. what we're doing. So then that's a, a weird story to tell. It's a it's an exciting story to tell, but it's one that is sort of costly to yeah. get in front of as it's many eyeballs as educating the market isn't it it's exactly. tough somebody hasn't gone out there and done that for you already yeah. so you're going to have to do yeah. that right? Well, so, sorry no go ahead go yeah. ahead Ruben. yeah so i think this sort of follows on from your point i think one major lesson that i've learned i mean many but one major lesson is there's a difference between people who could benefit from your product who could use your product who may even need your product and mm. people who will value your product tell me what, what do you mean by that so there are people who for instance struggle with writing but that doesn't mean they're going to pay for your product. And then there are people who not only struggle with writing and they will pay for your product. Mm. You know, so so you have to define your customer profile in a relatively precise way. Right. Yeah. So what's the difference between those two categories? So, so for instance, English language learners tend to both find the product very useful and value it mm. and will pay for it and mm. will pay quite handsomely for it. Mm. And then you have um, sort of users for whom English is their first language, they still struggle with writing, but they take quite a bit of convincing to to, to come to see that, well, I should actually pay for this. Yeah. Well, this goes know, back because, to what you were yeah. saying at the beginning, like, oh, okay, so I've got a university degree, I know how to write. Yeah. And then and then you right. bump up against somebody who says, well, actually, yeah. maybe you don't. Um, so that's, that's a bit yeah. of a hard sell. They, they don't know what the problem is themselves, yeah. yes. right? They exactly. can't see it. Whereas exactly. an English language learner is already sort of coming yes. from the outside. They're very sensitive yeah. to that. I think one of the things yeah. too, you know, in, in picking up on this, when you're an educator, you're used to um, trying to teach all students. So you're used to saying, okay, well, there are some that you're, they're going to want to come along yeah, and I can teach right. them. And then there's going to be that one at the back of the class and, and my challenge is to get him or her to come along. 
Whereas with a business, as, as Ruben says, you, you narrow your market niche and you say, okay, so some of them, right. even though they need it and they should have it. And as a teacher, I would want to help them yeah. as a business owner. You have to say, well, you know what? They, it's very different. They're lost, you know? Yeah. 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 You've got a responsibility as a teacher to make sure that everybody yeah. gets the opportunity. But in a business, you can't spread all you your can't. effort across mm -hmm. the yeah. market, you, can you? You can't. And, and I think the other piece too, and, and Ruben sort of alluded to this in terms of the, the who values it and, and who needs it and how that sort of meshes in terms of a, a, a business and, mm. and needing people to pay because you've got to keep the lights on and, and pay salaries and things like that. But interestingly, and this is, I think, um, you know, the digital world in which we live, people expect a lot that is delivered to them digitally to be free. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, very true. and which is, which was strange to me because in education, you know, people will buy textbooks and then you're like, well, this is better than a textbook and it is, you know, multidisciplinary. You can write mm, as yeah. many essays as you want, you know, all of these sorts of things. And that's like, oh, but online it's free, right? Right. Well, if you want me to take all your data and sell it, you know, <laughs> no, that's complicated. Yeah. You navigate that. Yeah. Field. Yeah. 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 But as you said, I mean, it's going back to the point. I mean, we'll look at your revenues in a minute. Mm -hmm. You're actually making money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the point is, is that there is a group of people who are paying mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. educational mm -hmm. services already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a big group who don't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or expect it to be given to them free. Right. So yeah. let's talk about the revenues in terms of where we are now. Mm -hmm. Let's jump back into the pitch deck. Towards the end, you've got um, your sort of journey over yeah, the last yeah. few years. And he, yeah. here we are. Let's, yeah, let's look at this. Yeah, so slide 31. Mm -hmm. Revenue growth, customer growth. So how many how many customers do you have now? So we've roughly? got about 15,000 um, mm. customers now. And one of the things that I think is, is interesting to note here is we sort of think of the last three years as basically um, just uh, being in stealth mode. So we've not spent any money on, on marketing or mm -hmm. on growth. We've really been building a product, testing a product. But of course, right. we've been doing that in the market because one of the, the key things that we took when we first sort of showed people that, that early prototype and we showed it to, to a, quite a seasoned ed tech provider and he said, you know, yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. There's nothing in the market like this. And he goes, but your biggest test will be who's going to open their wallet to pay for it. So mm -hmm. the sooner you answer that question Validated, the better yeah. Yeah. and so that's why we we sort of opened our pay gateways at the exact same moment that we opened up our beta mm. product to the world and so what you see um, on the slide in terms of year-over-year -year customer growth and revenue growth um, is that we have been growing very organically mm -hmm. um, through word of mouth and through our own sort of labor and efforts to get hustle. it in front of people it's the hustle it's so the you said 15,000 Customers that paid customers, 15,000? Um, so so some of them are paying. So I would probably say about half of those right. are paid customers. Some of those might be on a free trial. So we have mm -hmm. a seven-day free trial. We also institutionally often will start off the sales process with, say, a 90-day free trial so that teachers and educators right. can actually okay. get yeah, it in yeah. their class and try it out. And, and do, do you advertise? Do you Is it all purely organic and hustle? Or do you well, like, spend on Facebook ads? Or? So this gets to the interesting fundraising question. setting it up. Let's answer the question yeah. first, I yeah. think. Uh, so it's, it's, we've done some very small, low-level advertising. Right. Facebook, a uh, little bit of... But we have not done any systematic digital marketing, which is what we're moving to mm. do um yeah so that, that's i mean for you if, if you for, i mean because you've now got i mean if you've got seven thousand mm -hmm. paying customers you've got fifteen thousand yeah. mm -hmm. who are in the system yeah. um revenue wise well obviously that needs to be updated but 
and my eyesight's pretty poor from this distance. Maybe about, about half, half a million. million. Yeah. yeah. Half, half a million. million. Okay, so... Which is not bad, given where we come from. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. you know, you, you have uh, an ongoing concern. Yeah. If you can work out, for example, if it costs you X, let's say that's $5 to acquire a customer and mm -hmm. each customer's worth $50, mm -hmm. then you can see where the scale is going to be. Yeah. Exactly. That's where you start applying your marketing. And yeah. that's really sort of nice. We start to do the modeling for a Series A. That's yeah. Yeah. Those are the questions we're... Uh, yeah, and that's, and that's exactly yeah. the world that we're in right now. So we wanted... Really, before going in front of investors, we wanted to um, validate those assumptions yeah. as opposed to just saying, oh, okay, we're going to assert it's a customer acquisition cost of, you know, throw a dart at the wall, $5. Mm. We really wanted to then be able to say, okay, in, in, our, in our life, it's actually about, you know, $2.45 is our customer acquisition cost roughly. And mm. we're looking at sort of lifetime value of the customer, you know, and, and really sort of refine that a little bit more. And we're now sort of in the midst of making sure that we've got those numbers right so that mm. our, again, our philosophy was always try to de-risk this mm. first um, before going to friends and family investors, because we didn't want to go to our friends and family and be like, hey, invest in our company. And then lose all of our friends and family. And yeah. so, so that was kind of our first but Unfortunately, test. you can't lose your family. They're always going to be there, even when you've lost their money, right? I've tried, trust me. So <laughs> you've done the friends and family round. Yeah, That's yeah. how you funded it up until now. Yeah. And you, now you're going through what you call a Series A. So yeah. um, what's public in terms of what you... Are you publicly talking about how much you're raising or... Are you talking about who you're going to be talking to? Is it a strategic investor that you're looking no, for in well, tech? Or? So uh, at the level of friends and family, we have some pretty high-powered investors mm. who will help us raise on the Series A. They, they run funds and things like that. But we are starting to talk to other VCs. We're talking to a good one here, for example. I could tell you how much we'd like to raise, but mm. we're trying to see if we can get make the numbers where we'd like to raise about $10 million. Right. Basically, Canadian, U.S.? USD. USD. Everything's US, in right. USD. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a vision... Um, in terms of the technical play, mm. the, the the artificial intelligence play that we want to develop as well. So so far, the platform is fundamentally in the education edutech space, but there's some very interesting things we can do with artificial intelligence, and we're trying to build a proof mm. of concept for that. And we think if we're successful, then the valuation that we need to raise this money will not be impossible. So just so I understand, again, talking about the raise, mm. you said ten million. Obviously, now you're at the, you're an interesting yeah. scale stage where yes. you can just basically yeah. plug that in and just drive the whole yeah. thing up. Now it's just a case of, right, how many people can we get with this? Yeah. Exactly. Your your customers up until now are based where? Are they sort of Canadian or? So North American, Canada primarily. Right. Uh, but organically, we have customers from around the world. Right. But mostly Canada. Yeah. So, mo so mostly North America and mostly um, we've built up our customer base in the B2B space. Mm -hmm. So right. we have right now many more customers in institutions because we can physically go to an institution mm -hmm. and be like, hey, let yeah. me you know, come in yeah. and show this. And, th and then you get scale. So as an early stage startup, that's a way to get scale on the back of your own labor, your own sweat equity, to be, to be clear. Whereas moving into 2019, as we are really able to refine some of the financials around what a marketing cost, a true B2C digital marketing mm. cost looks like, we can then say, oh, okay, we can... Um, scale that B2C and that's where you really do see not the um, slow and steady organic growth of the B2B side, mm. but you open, really open up. Like I think right now we're at 95% B2B and 5% is B2C and right. that's really just been sort of I word mean, I of think mouth. to sort of jump in on this, so this 
the kind of money that we need and the sort of market share we'd like to see is not purely theoretical in the sense that we've got a partnership with the British Council mm. and uh, that partnership is global. It will take time, but they have 92 million digital users. So potentially they would give us a pathway into that market of English language learners. So it's mm. uh, so we already have that. Now it's to develop the product and to be able to market effectively to this customer base because the British Council itself has complications with how these different markets might work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 similarly, yeah. we've got distribution partners globally. You know, right before we came here, we were meeting with another um, regional distributor. And so part of it is we've got distribution partners able to get SA Jack in, in front of as many schools, colleges, and universities as possible. And then it's like, okay, so now what is the support cost to that? So yeah, that, you yeah. know, if, if it's just, you know, a very teeny tiny team on our end, um, you know, that's that's obviously not sustainable either. Mm. I think it's interesting though. I mean, you've got the B2B and the B2C mm -hmm. and they both will complement each other long term, I Absolutely. believe. You know, if you can get, for example, I mean, if you could... For example, if you went into the student market in B2C and had 10,000 students in a city using the product, then they went to university. They're going to ask their university tech sure. guy, do you have SA Jack? Mm -hmm. I use this. Am I yeah. allowed to use it here? You know, if they can't fulfill that, then that's a, a strike against that university. It's going to be for them an important mm -hmm. part of their process. Yeah. So you can have the B2B sale there as well. And it yeah. goes the other way as well. If you train people to use it I inside mean, I, the university. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. Afterwards. I mean, that's like for us, we, we see these as two very mutually supportive mm -hmm. business lines. And so and as well, from a healthy business model perspective, you're again to use that sort of de-risking. So yeah. if you if you say, lose a big client that represents, you know, say a three-year contract and they decide they don't need SA Jack any longer, but you've got a really robust B2C business going, then you can transfer those students who, say, used to get access to mm. SA Jack through their institutional license. Well, they can just sign up on their own, you know, and so you, you can sort of balance yeah. things out. And then as well, you, you, you have the buy-in from the institutions. I mean, I can obviously, as I did earlier in the podcast, I can geek out about writing and and teaching yes, and can. yeah, yeah. I really. We I, haven't talked about Shakespeare yet. <laughs> no, no. I'm I'm trying to trying to behave, but I mean, uh, you know, there. We don't have time. <laughs> but I, I, it's great as well. And uh, I'm conscious of the time, yeah. but there's one thing I wanted to mm. ask you. And now we're here in Asia, mm -hmm. and we're mm -hmm. in possibly what will be the biggest ed tech market yeah. in the world. And that's it, why we're here. And that's why we're here. I mean, you talk about. I mean, the fact that you mentioned foreign language learners learning English English as a second language China as an example mm -hmm. I mean I, I saw the statistics something like 250 million students in China learning English so they have the largest population of English language learners in the world right they're in China exactly yeah. Yeah. and they you know you see the Chinese I mean you see the Chinese families here mm -hmm. in Singapore invest in education yeah. it's mm -hmm. big mm -hmm. so you know you're in the right place mm -hmm. obviously yeah. in Terms of opportunity, you know, you you you've got a good market already in North America. 